Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I am speaking with Angela Hume about self-help. Angela, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, of course. Thank you, Kim and Saranik, so much for having me on High Theory. I'm really happy to be able to participate. Uh, My name is Angela Hume, and I am a literary critic turned feminist historian, and I'm also a poet. And I have a new book coming out on November 14th called Deep Care, The Radical Activists Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep Clinics Open. And it's coming out on AK Press. And some of what I talk about today comes from that book. Awesome. What the heck is self-help? Well, I think mostly when we hear that term self-help, we are thinking along the lines of the popular culture idea, which is a neoliberal idea that you can like self-actualize through individual consumer choices. And that's not the self-help that I'm talking about. The self-help that I am talking about is... It's a few things. Um, One thing that it is, is a radical political movement. And I'll tell you about the movement in just a second. I'll say too that self-help is a set of political tactics that are extremely portable. And finally, self-help is anarchist feminist philosophy. So yeah, so the political movement, in my book, Deep Care, I talk about abortion work, specifically what's called the gynecological and abortion self-help movement. So what most people don't know is that from the early 1970s into the 2000s, the years when abortion was protected nationwide as a constitutional right, during these years, activists practiced abortion outside the walls of clinics, and they called their movement self-help. And the self-help movement, it was working class led. It grew out of radical left movements of the 1960s, civil rights, feminist consciousness raising, black radicalism, uh, notably paralleled the Black Panther Party's People's Free Medical Clinics, which um, in the 70s, promoted what the Panthers called self-health. Right, 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 which Alondra Nelson has written about. Yes, she has in her excellent book, uh, Body and Soul. I was writing a book about an independent abortion clinic in Oakland called Women's Choice that operated from 1972 to 2009 and also about gynecological self-help in, I only realized later, a somewhat superficial way. Mm-hmm. I was writing this book. And then abortion law started to implode. And somewhere in the process of my archival research and the oral history interviews that I was conducting, um, some of the multi-generational activists that I had been interviewing decided amongst themselves that it was time to come forward about the underground abortion work that they did regularly for many years. Okay. 
So it turns out that um, for decades in small secretive group meetings held in living rooms and bedrooms and offices and even attics, activists taught each other about gynecology. So sexual anatomy, pleasure, orgasm, fertility tracking, how to diagnose STIs and other conditions, how to perform pelvic exams, and critically, how to empty the uterus to end a pregnancy with a very simple suction technology that you can more or less build out of equipment from the hardware store or today from the internet. And they called it menstrual extraction. So in the early 70s, some of the older abortion activists also started above-ground clinics that they then okay. ran themselves. And those clinics were called Feminist Women's Health Centers. Yeah. And the Oakland Clinic that I write about in my book, Women's Choice, was one of the original Feminist Women's Health Centers. And that health center provided the local abortion self-help groups in their community with supplies, equipment, and medical training. Okay. So my book gives just a slice of self-help history. And of course, people didn't only practice abortion self-help in the San Francisco Bay Area. But through a case study, I can really get into the details of people's organizing work in a particular time and place. And the end result, I hope, is a kind of how-to manual for future self-helpers. I had known that feminist self-help groups existed and that they practiced and taught menstrual extraction, but I didn't know that it persisted after Roe versus Wade. So can you tell me why, like once abortion sort of went above ground, why people kept doing this work underground? One point to make is that abortion as a constitutionally protected right was more or less in name only. In many parts of the United States, abortion has always been relatively inaccessible despite constitutional protection. Additionally, after that ruling came down in 73, the right wing began to mobilize to prohibit abortion. And by the end of the 1970s, the right had secured the Hyde Amendment, which prohibited federal funding for abortion and made it unaffordable for people on Medicaid and also for many indigenous women who mm. um, accessed health care through the Indian Health Service. And in the decades that followed, abortion opponents continued to pass legislation to got access. And so there has continued to be a sense of urgency around creating infrastructure to ensure that abortion will continue to be accessible despite what happens with the law. And self-helpers involved in the gynecological and abortion self-help movement knew this and acted accordingly. I just gave you a bunch of history. And if it would be okay, I'd love to just talk a little bit more about the theory of self-help. Totally. Yeah. So a terrific scholar named Michelle Murphy interprets the abortion self-help movement as as essentially anticipating neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. So she argues that self-help modeled what she calls small group protocol feminism that would eventually be taken up by women's health NGOs all around the world. And I think it's a very persuasive historical argument, but after talking about self-help extensively with people who practiced it for many decades – and really listening to them articulate what it was that they were doing, 
I decided that I didn't agree with Murphy. So what Murphy doesn't really look at, I would argue, is the improvisatory and experimental nature of the intimate relationship practices that make up those social aspects of self-help. And these political relational aspects are the ones that the anarcho-feminist in me is interested in. Okay. Just to kind of elaborate, in my book, I write, perhaps Murphy is right that 1970s self-help registered an incipient neoliberalism. But for every self-help protocol, there was also a self-help swerve. It's in these improvised responses, risks and intimacy and praxis that people took together that I locate self-help's radical politics. I read self-help as anticipating and ultimately resisting neoliberalism, a structure that separates people from each other, precluding intimacy from beneath that emerging structure. Yeah. I don't know if this is true from your research, but from what I know about this movement, self-help practices involved women being very intimate with each other's bodies seeing each other's genitals naked in a non-sexual way, potentially in sexual ways too, but in a way that like is sort of not standard in our society for people to see each other, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I write about this non-sexualized feminist body sharing in my book, and I kind of theorize it at length. Cool. Maybe this is actually a good point to transition to our next question. How do I use self-help? Yeah. What does that look like? How does it actually get used in practice? Self-help, I think, is urgently needed today with the far right's war on abortion access and sexual health care generally, along with the structurally related war on the health of trans people through the banning of gender affirming health care. So while the self-help I write about in my book is about a specific set of practices for caring for people with cervixes, uteruses, and ovaries, importantly, the model and philosophy of self-help is extremely portable. So self-help teaches us about the political power of non-hierarchical underground group work. So in chapter three of my book, I go down a little bit of a second wave feminism rabbit hole, as one is wont to do. (laughs) And in the archives, I found a little volume authored by an early self-helper and co-founder of Women's Choice in Oakland. And in it, she wrote about the theoretical concept of the self-help clinic. She argued that self-help provides a format for radicalizing people. She wrote, once a woman has looked inside herself, she immediately turns her eyes and energies outward in an aggressive way. She is able to confront institutions that she once thought were out of her control entirely. Okay. So this author, Laura Brown, is talking about abortion self-help specifically, but her comments point toward how self-help is widely applicable. The principle is really basic. You have to look inside before you can look out with the eyes of the revolutionary. In other words, perhaps the personal is political. So you can use self-help to learn about your body, absolutely, and even about how to do an abortion. But truly, for many of us, the best way to use this history is to learn from it and integrate its highly transferable lessons to aid us in many different liberation struggles today. I can read for you a paragraph from the very end of my book in which I offer some sort of practical lessons (laughs) for how to use self-help. And one of those lessons is work with many hands. So I'll just, I'll read a paragraph. 
The most important lesson I've learned through studying Bay Area abortion self-help and clinic defense is that small groups of people working closely, securely, and dynamically together can make revolutionary change. Cool. Working with others can feel difficult and takes patience and practice, but when we do it successfully, we build community power from the inside. That's why learning how to work in small groups is one of the most important political lessons there is. What can we do with our hands? Think about how many hands it takes, whether in an underground or a licensed clinic setting, to make sure just one person gets an abortion. Sometimes it takes a lot of hands just to get somebody from the street through the clinic door. It can take many hands to get so many things done, not just abortions. So we should offer our hands to each other when we can. Cool. And that I think maybe what you're saying suggests the displacement of the neoliberal self that other scholars have seen at work in the idea of self-help, right? It's not just about me, but about me and all of the people I'm working with in this small group to accomplish a particular end. Absolutely. How will self-help save the world? You can probably at this point begin to imagine some possible answers mm -hmm. to this question. Today, in 21 states, abortion is banned or severely restricted. And I'm thinking, Kim, of your essay in yeah. Post 45 at the Contemporaries Abortion Now, Abortion Forever Cluster, which became the occasion yeah. for our meeting. I'm thinking of your essay in which, you know, you discuss how when abortion access is restricted, women of color in particular are at greater risk of being subject to coercive sterilization. And these two injustices historically have yeah. gone hand in hand. Yeah. And um, today, if they can, people in restricted states who are seeking abortions are going online to order their abortion pills. And in fact, around the time of the Dobbs decision, orders for pills through an organization called Aid Access, an Austria-based pill mm -hmm. fulfillment service, um, orders spiked like more than 30% in restrictive states specifically. So thank goodness for widely available abortion pills. Um, and just the other day, the New York Times reported that Polish scientists have developed lab testing that can detect if a person has taken mifepristone or misoprostol okay. abortion pills in samples of blood or placenta. So things are changing fast. And if pills become less available, we do have simple suction abortion. And not to get too much into the weeds, but simple suction abortion is already used all around the world in places where abortion care is limited. The industrial manufactured device is called the I-PASS manual vacuum aspirator or simply yes. MVA. So how will self-help save the world? The knowledge will travel and spread reproductive autonomy. And the political philosophy will inspire and empower us. And I'm thinking of one self-helper whose pseudonym in my book is Max, who practiced self-help for many, many years in the Bay Area. Max said to me, I want the readers of your book to know that they can do this wherever they are. And I think that's the sentiment that I want to leave you all with nice. today. Yeah, it is great that it is possible to order medications for medically assisted abortions now, but as you're suggesting, those might not always be available. And it's maybe good to have access to something we can do with our hands that doesn't rely on large multinational pharmaceutical corporations. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
Some physicians are organizing to spread awareness of simple suction abortion and how primary care providers could potentially train up and be able to offer this procedure to people who want or need it. And they have a website called myanetwork.org. And again, they're a network of clinicians who are trying to expand early abortion options in primary care settings. And I think, I don't know if this is something you encountered in your research, but I remember seeing that prior to 1973 in the US, a lot of the underground abortions were performed by doctors. And the place that a lot of women would go before these self-help groups developed was their primary care doctor. This is true. This is true. And people developed extensive referral networks to help each other learn about which doctors could support them in obtaining an abortion. Yeah. And I think part of the sort of argument of self-help we've been talking about today is that awesome if you can have someone who is trained to do this. And at the end of the day, um, this is knowledge that people who are not medically trained professionals can claim for themselves. So on this topic, as part of my research, I had the chance to speak with a self-helper who went on to become a licensed doctor and an OBGYN. And I'll just read you her take on all of this. I asked her whether she thought lay people should learn and practice menstrual extraction. She had this to say, I would say surgical abortion should be done in a medical setting because that's the safest. But I would also say that birth should be done in a medical setting because that's the safest. And I recognize that in the U.S., people choose to have births outside of the hospital, and I respect patient autonomy. Abortion and birth outside of the hospital are not the same thing. But I also recognize that abortion outside of a medical setting has had a historical role and may continue to have a role depending on the political situation. So Simone's comments suggest that while medical settings with imaging and other technology, along with licensed professionals, help facilitate safe delivery and abortion procedures, there are still reasons why patients might opt for alternative settings. And crucially, if medical settings are not available, people will still both give birth and terminate pregnancies. Therefore, the question of whether lay people should learn how to do suction abortions is basically moot. Because in reality, people will simply learn how to do what they need to know how to do, even in the absence of supportive healthcare infrastructure. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us about self-help and about your new book. Thank you so much, Kim and Saranik, for having me on High Theory. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio, and Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>